Hello, David Grinspoon here, a.k.a. Dr. Funky Spoon. You're listening to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your all-star host tonight, and I have with me, here in the studio, my good friend and comedic co-host, Chuck Nice. Dr. Funky Spoon. What's going on, Chuck? And it's always great to have you around, man. So fun to, to be with you again. Yeah. This episode of All-Stars, we're going to take a deep dive into the outer, outer solar system as we discuss the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond. And to help us with that, I've brought, I've brought on my, my good friend and, and colleague, a, a very special guest, Alan Stern. Alan is, the, is a planetary scientist, and he is the principal investigator, meaning the leader, of the New Horizons mission, which went to Pluto in 2015 and is still going. We're going to talk about that. Together, Alan and I are co-authors on a recently released book, which is called Chasing New Horizons. Inside the epic first mission to Pluto. And, uh, well, gosh, I'm, we I'm, go. let's, let's do this. Alan, thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Let's, uh, let's tell some stories. I, you know, there have been other Star Talk episodes about Pluto, the planet itself, the science. We'll talk about that some. But what we. Just say a planet? Are you, y'all? Yeah, Chuck, come on. <laughs> come on, I already know where you stand. You on know. This. I know exactly where look, you stand. On. Look at the picture on the cover of the book. What is that? <laughs> yeah, well, if this baby was yeah. on, on the uh, viewfinder on the bridge of the Enterprise, what would you call it? Oh, well, definitely it's a planet. Yeah, yeah. duh. But, Everybody thinks that. But, but, you know, what, what we try to do in this book and what we could do a little bit on this show is go behind the scenes in the story of the mission itself, mm-hmm. how it happens. You know, people know we got to Pluto. They know there was a launch. They know the spacecraft got there. But what happened before the launch and in between the launch and the arrival when it wasn't in the news? There's a lot of really <coughs> intense drama and maneuvering and effort and um, uh, you know, just a lot of twists and turns that this team goes through. And since we've got Alan here and he's lived this story, let's tell some stories about about the mission itself. There's there's one really poignant detail in here, and maybe we should just launch into that. Alan, um, tell us about uh, Clyde Tombaugh and um, how he ended up playing not just a role in the discovery of Pluto, but uh, a surprising role in the New Horizons mission. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, Clyde uh, w- was um, a 23-year-old kid when he was hired to do what no one had been able to do for 25 years. They were searching for Planet X. And uh, uh, I think all the people who had been working for Percival Lowell had graduated into management. They had no time left anymore Mm -hmm. to actually go to the telescope. And Clyde had been sending these letters in to Lowell Observatory. He wanted a job. And so they offered it to him. It was kind of like that old commercial, you know, Mikey elite it, you know. Right. (laughs) And uh, Clyde gets up to Lowell Observatory, and 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 they put in the work, and the telescope parts come in for a new telescope, and he puts it together, and they're taking photographs at night, and he's... Uh, uh, developing the the plates, and then he's analyzing the data. He realized they were doing it completely wrong, and he reinvented the technique. And then he actually discovered this thing, Planet X, that they've been looking for since like literally 1905. Wow, 1930. He finds it. He goes to his boss, knocks on his door. He says, "Doctor Schleifert, I found your Planet X," and he was right. And he'd really discovered the Kuiper Belt. Wow. People went looking for more things they couldn't find. It was the 90s before the technology got good enough to equal Clyde. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. S- 60 yeah, years later. So far ahead of his time. Anyway, he was still living in the 90s. He knew all about the Kuiper Belt. I remember giving a seminar at the University of New Mexico, New Mexico State, where he was a professor. 
and he was near the end of his life. He sat in the front row of my seminar. He was wearing an oxygen mask. I'm wow. not kidding you. Sat in the front row, and he'd take the oxygen mask off and ask questions all through the seminar. He was so engaged. But he had said, because um, he knew we were studying how to do missions to Pluto, if one ever gets launched, uh, I would like my ashes to be flown on it. Whoa. And uh, Wow. Yes, this is true. That's he a lot. Said that. That's so much better than, than my wish, which is to have my ashes, just tiny bits of it, put in pepper shakers all over the city. But go ahead. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 I'm glad you, you got that on, on tape here, because we'll try to honor that, Chuck. <laughs> Hopefully not for a while. Hopefully. But, yeah. So, so um, we, were, uh, we were very busy, obviously, you know, um, building a spacecraft and getting it tested. But once it became clear, it looked like we might make the launch window, I called up his widow, Patsy Tombaugh. And I said, I remember this. And I said, I don't know if you, you all really plan for it or if you're even interested. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, be forward or something about it. But if that was Clyde's wish and you have his ashes, we'd be honored to fly them to Pluto. Wow. And they sent them to my office in Boulder, Colorado, in a little canister. I put them in a briefcase and my next trip out to the spacecraft, uh, I brought them and the, um, the engineering team we're very ingenious about it. They actually they took them out of the, the the canister the Tombaugh family gave me and made a balance weight out of it because the spacecraft has to be perfectly exactly. balanced for spinning. And um, and so used it to, sort of for an engineering purpose. We wrote a little plaque. I wrote some words. And, uh, yeah, and then we launched him to the stars. Which is, which is so cool historically because you think of this arc where in 1930, this, you know, this farm boy from Kansas, uh, you know, discovers, discovers a planet. And then... Uh, that's in living memory of people that are still alive. And here, here we are, uh, you know, uh, 86 years later. And um, is that right? Yeah. And, and um, there's a little bit of his atoms that have now flown past that planet he discovered all the way across the solar system and will keep going. And one of the five human artifacts that are going to escape the solar system and, and wander the galaxy forever includes atoms that were, that were part of this guy, Clyde Tombaugh. That is super cool, man. Yeah, yeah. And how nice of you to actually honor that. I mean, well, it's really, part of the history. And I think in space exploration, you know, the human side and, you know, we do lots of, of communication with the public, but also honoring the history. You know, um, most of the planets that, that we know of now are new planets discovered in the Kuiper Belt. But for a long time, they were all discovered by the ancients, and no one knew who the actual discoverers were. Mm. Now we know, you know, Mike Brown's discovered this one, or Clyde Tombaugh discovered that one. But um, uh, to be able to do something like that, and frankly, uh, it, it made his family really happy. I'm going to try my best now to discover a planet just so I can have my asses flown there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, yeah. it's good to have goals, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let's talk a little bit more of the, uh, you know, uh, some of the, some of the geeky mechanics of what it, what it took to to get to uh, to Pluto. Some things that people may not know. One thing that I think is really cool that you guys did on this mission, um, and I didn't know how cool it was until we started talking about writing this book, was hibernation. Yeah. That was an innovation these guys made. It, tell us about hibernation. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, most spacecraft are, are um, uh, monitored most of the time uh, and, uh, by their mission control. The mission controls are staffed seven days a week in most cases. Sometimes they'll skip for a holiday or something, and the spacecraft will uh, have a program on board to run for a couple of days. But uh, it's expensive. 
Um, and uh, when we were proposing to, to build New Horizons, uh, NASA said anybody who proposes has to fit in this cost box that was like ridiculously constraining. Hmm. You, you have to fly further than Voyager, that is to Pluto, not Neptune, and you have to do it on one-fifth of the budget. A challenge. Yes. <laughs> so, we, so we made a lot of compromises and, and innovative changes in the way we did it. For example, unlike Voyager, we couldn't afford two, so we only had one, and that saved $500 million right there. Cool. Okay. Right. Um, we decided that, you know, uh, if we downsized our communication system, we'd have lower bit rates and it would take longer to get all the data back. But the transmitters would be less expensive. And more importantly, we would only need one instead of two nuclear power supplies. And those babies are about $80 million apiece. So right there, we made a huge savings just for a little delayed gratification. Instead of getting all the data back in a month, it would take about a year. We figured if we can make it nine years and be healthy, we can make it that 10th year. And it worked. Um, but another change that we made was to write software to let the spacecraft take care of itself for months on end. That's called hibernation. A lot of the systems would be turned off, just the core systems left on. And it had the side benefit of extending the life of the components because by the time we got to Pluto after nine and a half years – most of the avionics boxes on the bird had only had about three years of life used. So it thought it was a young strapping spacecraft, you know, not a nine and a half year old bird. You know, when you're talking about hibernation, I just got this flash, this image of my mind in 2001 of them sleeping on on the way to Jupiter and then waking up in the pods, you know, but I'm like, uh, fortunately, you didn't have like a computer trying to kill everybody off. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, we invented this hibernation and what it lets do, you know, Voyager had 450 people on the flight team. We only had 50. That's about a tenth as many. And hibernation freed up our mission control team to mostly work on Pluto encounter planning during the nine years we were traveling. It was a huge money saver, and it helped us from an engineering perspective. And now lots of other missions have adopted hibernation, so we were kind of pioneering in that. Yeah. There's several innovations that New Horizons made out of necessity because they had to do this mission, like, as Alan said, with this ridiculously constrained budget, and they had to make a tiny spacecraft so it could fly across the solar system and not take, you know, only take nine years. And, and a lot of those innovations are, are now being used by other missions. So that, that's kind of cool to see. David has wrapped all of this into the book. You know, so in addition to being an adventure story about the exploration of Pluto, it's also a nerd fest. I mean, you can, you can find out about the real details of what it takes to sell a mission in Washington, D.C. to raise the money. You can find out about what it takes to design and build an interplanetary spacecraft. And you can find out what's behind the scenes for planning uh, flybys, which nobody uh, – I don't – remember reading any book like uh, this. I, I think that this sort of gets you under the hood of a spacecraft mission in a way that I haven't seen done. But it also, like, I'm glad you mentioned it's an adventure story because there's this human element. It's, it's a group of people that started when they were really young, Alan and, and his colleagues. And you see them kind of grow up with this effort. And, you know, when they're young, they have no idea, like, how to raise a billion dollars and get this approved through NASA. And they make a lot of false starts and things, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns where they, they get door slammed in their faces. But somehow they, they keep going. But you, you see these people uh, who started off as, you know, as kids, and now they're middle-aged uh, scientists, and it's largely a lot of the same people who've finally succeeded in doing this. And uh, so, that, you know, there's some characters that you kind of get to know. Right, and that's what, the way that the book is written. There's a narrative that's going on, and 
uh, David and I basically did interviews um, for a year and a half every week. But in addition, uh, David had went out and interviewed two dozen or so people who are in the story. And so you hear all their voices. There are big passages where you hear NASA, former NASA administrators speaking and former head of NASA science program and the project manager, Glenn Fountain, and scientists who were there at the start, like Fran Baganal, who were there when we got to Pluto, too, or John Spencer on our science team the entire time, and many other voices. Some of these people have been on Star Trek before John Spencer has. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you ever had, if you've never had Fran Baganal, we've got to get her on, too. She's, Fran's awesome, and she was there from the beginning, and she's an expert in planetary magnetic fields. So a lot, a lot of these people, uh, you know, they were fresh out of grad school, and they were like, we're going to send a mission to Pluto, and, and NASA's like, no, you're not. And they're like, uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> and this went on for a long time, and then finally they did it. <laughs> so what is the biggest challenge of uh, planning in, in, a, in a planetary mission such as this? Like, is it dealing with, uh, you know, administrators, or is it dealing with getting the money, or is it dealing with, you know, the government, or, you know, what is, what is the... Uh, I think that's a great question, but, but really, there's no one single answer. When we were... You know, we spent 14 years from the idea until we really had the money locked down. That's a long time. That's longer it took to cross the solar system. That's a a commitment, man. But then when NASA had a competition, the uh, the team that I formed was really the David and the David versus Goliath battle. We were were not the JPL team. And Mm -hmm. JPL had all the experience in planetary exploration. And they had trying some really to, famous godlike scientists who had done Voyager and these other missions like that were they, they were sort of the obvious choice, but they weren't necessarily the best choice. And, and we had to it. figure out how to beat that and we managed to do it. And that was an incredible year-long struggle for us to come out on top. We were the surprise winners. And then you I get my award letter, congratulations Dr. Stern. It's got this list of hurdles. Like, you'll have to do nuclear launch qualification in less than half the time that anyone ever has. Good luck. Wow. You'll have to Which build this. a ridiculous maze, by the way, of like 42 different state and federal agencies that all have to agree that, that it's okay. And if that's not hard enough, you'll have to build it on a fifth the cost of Voyager. And if that's not hard enough, you only have one Jupiter launch window, not two. If you miss one three-week launch window in January of 06, it's game over. Right. There's just a list of these hurdles. It took my breath away. When I, re- when I looked at it, I thought, how are we going to get through all this? But we got down to work, and people really committed. And uh, that, you know, sometimes it helps to have impossible challenges because it, it makes your team stronger. And it was nights and weekends for four years to get it built. You guys are like the indie film of space missions. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Kind of. It's like there's the big studio. They're right. the obvious choice. It's going to get all the funding. Yeah. And then these guys come up with the creative indie proposal, and and it, it becomes the hit. You know? Nice. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you mentioned the launch window and the pressure pressure to get off by a certain time. Let's talk about that a little bit. There were some ticking clocks, some reasons why if it didn't go when it did, it really wasn't going to happen at all. Yeah. Uh, c- could you speak to that? Yeah, there were there were really two categories of of constraints. That's a great great one. Um, one was simply that in order to get to Pluto quickly, um, we needed to get not only the biggest rocket that anybody would sell you and the, the most tricked out version of it, the Atlas V five fifty one. Cool. Um, but in addition, we needed a Jupiter gravity assist, and Jupiter was moving out of position. Launching in January 06 was the last chance to use Jupiter for a decade. So if we miss that, 
we were going to, instead of being on a nine and a half year journey, it would have taken that Atlas V 14 years for us to reach Pluto. In fact, we wouldn't be there today in 2018. The arrival would have been in 2019. And that much longer flight time is riskier. Your spacecraft's got to last longer. Your power levels are lower when you get there. The communications range is longer. None of that stuff's good. You always want to arrive sooner, closer. Um, And then on top of that, Pluto, which is moving away from the sun in its orbit right now, is cooling off. And one of the major objectives NASA set out for the mission was to study Pluto's atmosphere. But there were... uh, a series of, of modeling papers that had come out saying Pluto's atmosphere will snow out onto the surface before the year 2020. Hmm. And it won't so, be So if they get there, there's going to be no atmosphere to study, right. yeah. maybe. <laughs> right. So we were racing to get there before the atmosphere collapsed, in addition. And uh, anyway, it all worked out. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one funny thing about this book is there's all this drama. Will they make it to Pluto? you know, against all these odds. And yet on the cover of the book, there's a beautiful picture of Pluto. Right. So we know how it ends. And yet I think we still managed to make it sort of keep on the edge of your seat because there's all these things they had to go through. Uh, at any rate, uh, we're going to have to wrap up this part of the show, but we'll be right back and we'll do some cosmic queries and talk a little bit more about the, the New Horizons mission to Pluto. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon. Sometimes you might hear me referred to as Dr. Funky Spoon. That's my handle on Twitter. And co hosting today is my friend, the comedian Chuck Nice. Neither a doctor nor funky. Well, we'll make you an honorary doctor, Chuck, just in our minds. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was going to say. That's the only place that can happen. Believe me, I know a lot of doctors, and you know a lot more than a lot of them. <laughs> you're funnier than, than some of them. <laughs> How's that? Yeah. What did you do to him? It started off really well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. And then it went downhill from there. <laughs> That's right. Joining us as our very special in-studio guest today, we've got the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission to Pluto, my friend Alan Stern. Alan and I are the co-op of a new book, Chasing New Horizons, that's hot off the press. And so we're talking about that mission and, and, and some of the details, both human and technical. Let's talk a little bit about the launch, because that was just such a moment of, uh, you know, it was the end of one journey and the beginning of another. And it was also this, you know, physically very powerful thing. Alan, tell us, tell us some cool stuff about the, the vehicle, the launch vehicle, the, the, the Atlas rocket. I mean, yeah. what, what made that, that rocket special? Well, it was the most powerful uh, Atlas V that's ever been launched. In fact, it, you can't even buy an Atlas V like we flew for New Horizons. We we ordered every solid rocket motor you could add onto the first stage. We ordered the lightweight nose. You know, for a kid that built Estes model rockets, you know, and saved up my like my car wash and lawn mowing money to get bigger and better. Estes rockets. It was so much fun ordering this Atlas. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty <laughs> it was like a, my twelve-year-old self was like going nuts. It'd be it, funny to figure out like how many Estes of the largest. Uh, oh, well, we figured that rockets out. Would, oh, you did. Oh, yes, 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 yes. It's like ten to the eighth. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <That's> a lot. <laughs> but um, even in the most powerful configuration, it could not not launch little New Horizons, which is a lightweight sports car spacecraft, um, all the way to Jupiter. So we had to add a third stage which is a custom third stage called the Star 48, uh, built by the Boeing company. Uh, And that's what uh, actually accelerated us to really high speed after we got off the Atlas Centaur. Um, And as the book describes, at that time, the people who made 
uh, the Atlas, Lockheed Martin, were arch rivals with the Boeing company that made the Star 48. They were competing in the launch business. And we had to make a marriage between these two rivals where they had to share designs and, you know, intellectual property. Uh, and that was, that was a very interesting experience. But that's kind of also a sidelight. The launch, the most unique thing about the launch is that everybody on the project, whether you'd worked on it for a couple of years some of us literally had been 17 years from idea to now the rocket's on the launch pad. You know that when that fuse is lit, you're going to have a memorable day. It's One either going to go, either gonna go really well or really poorly. That project is either you are now in flight to the farthest worlds ever explored, or you're in the ocean or in smithereens or in some bad place. And it is, it is really unlike almost anything else you do where you get no go backs, you are not in control. Hopefully all the testing and reviews and everything have found all the problems, but no one had ever married a star 48 on top of an Atlas. And no one had even flown the 551, the big powerful um, version of the Atlas before. In fact, the second time it was used, I believe was the MSL curiosity launch many years later. And so uh, it was, um, it was definitely, in a way, like driving to work that day for the countdown was solemn. You, you reflect. I was reflecting on, is this the last day I'm going to ever work on getting to Pluto, or is this the first day of the most memorable journey I'll ever go on? Yeah, it was, it was really an intense moment. I mean, I was there as a spectator, as, as many people were, and it was, for one thing, it was an incredible gathering because there was a sense of a historic moment. So a lot of the people that are, a lot of the, the space people were there. You know, Neil Tyson was there, and Bill Nye, and, and uh, just so many journalists and, and uh, scientists and hangers-on, crowds and crowds of people. And... Um, and there was a lot of drama because it didn't launch on the first day it was supposed to. It almost did. And then it got, you know, there was a weather problem. They had to call it off. And then there was a storm in Maryland where Mission Control is. And, was, you know. Second so, day didn't work. Yeah. So so it was. Um, and then they took a day off to let the launch crews kind of chill out <laughs> from all the anxiety and work. And, and, then, and then finally, the next day, it actually did launch. But since there had been this countdown and then stop, you know, it just kind of heightened the anxiety. Is it going to go today? And it's so powerful and it was so much anxiety, but then so much joy afterwards. And literally the entire Space Coast became this one big party of everybody celebrating and, you know, strangers stopping each other and hugging in the streets. It's like, you know, it's like when the Broncos won the Super Bowl in Denver, but even better. <laughs> and, Way and, better. <laughs> yeah. And, but it was also, as Alan describes, this feeling of it was the end of this long, long journey that we talk about in the book. I mean, years of work. But it was also, he points out, the very beginning, because at that point, they still had not accomplished anything in that we knew nothing new about Pluto yet. And they had this nine-year journey ahead of them. So, um, that was, in a way, the most intense moment. But then, of course, we have the moment of the flyby itself. But uh, can I say a couple things about the launch? First of all, you know, that, that nine-year journey, when we first transitioned to flight, and you would think in 20, you know, in 2006, about 2015, it was far away time. Um, I had a 12-year-old son uh, at that time, and I, I would add, and I would say, I can't picture him being 21 years old, you know? I can't picture what he will look like, you know? He'll be, he'll be grown up. And uh, it, it was daunting. And we, would, we thought a lot about the Voyager team. They took 12 years to get to Neptune. We were only going to be nine years all the way to Pluto. So, um, but, you know, um, those people really went through their careers. And we thought a lot about that. It was, um, 
uh, it was a big hill to climb to fly a nine-year flight and make sure with no backup spacecraft that you didn't ever lose the bird. Uh-huh. And what is that transition like? I mean, you go from all this preparation time and all of this angst about, will we get this thing off the ground? And will it actually, you know, do what it's supposed to do? And then you just have to kind of transition into what? Like, all right, still there. Well, we were flying. Okay, it's Tuesday, still flying. We were busy. You'd think so. That's one of the pictures people have. Yeah. As I I learned working on this book with Alan— they're very, very busy on the flight to Pluto. Like, in a way, more busy or as busy as they were before the launch. There's a lot that they have to do. But I should tell you that the the, the launch, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've been on a lot of space missions, dozens of them. And everything from space shuttles to suborbital missions to other planetary missions. And every, every corner of the space business has their own traditions. Uh-huh. You know, like in the shuttle world... Um, there's some anonymous person that sends flowers to mission control for every shuttle launch with a note wishing them good luck. That's you someone's know. job? That, that's, we no, don't know it's who some, does it. Some, oh, somebody some just does citizen. that. Oh, a, cool. And no one's ever figured out who. They've just been anonymous. They did it 135 times during 30 years. You know, It could um, be some 400-pound guy in, on a bed in his basement. It was probably. <laughs> Sorry. Or the Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are all kinds of traditions. And, and David... Um, uh, outline some of my own, you know, like going for a long run the morning of launch and just sort of getting my thoughts in order, that kind of thing. But um, uh, I learned one new tradition at this launch is we went to the the parties afterwards, the the post launch parties at these um, hotels, and there were ain't no party like a post launch party. Oh yeah, that's actually <laughs> and, true. And and you know, of course, there are toasts and so forth. And and then uh, I get a tap on the shoulder from one of the Lockheed Martin guys from the Atlas team, and he said. Um, Dr. Stern, I'd like you to come with us out back here on the beach because there's a tradition we're celebrating, and I think you want to be part of this. And so I followed them out there, and there's a trash can that they built a bonfire in, uh, and all these people are gathered around it. And I come up, and what's this all about? And they said, we have a tradition on the Atlas program that if everything works, then we don't need the malfunction procedures, so we burn them in a bonfire so to all celebrate these, that all it works. So these engineers, are there... <laughs> You know, holding their Mai Tais and their cocktails, and they're gleefully, you know, doing this ritual Eating. where they're laughing, and they're taking pages of this huge, expensive launch contingency procedure, and they're laughing and throwing them on the fire, on the up in the barrel, and the flames are going up into the night. It was, it was really something. And we not only tell that story in the book, but we have a picture of that bonfire with people gathered all around. That's pretty cool, man. It's like uh, it's like when you uh, when you when you burn your mortgage <laughs> after thirty years, and then that was such a powerful memory to me when the Pluto flyby succeeded on the July fourteenth, twenty fifteen date. That night, the science team held a party at a Sheraton hotel, and a bunch of us decided we should take all of the malfunction procedures and go down and by the pool. We built another bonfire, and we repeated that with New Horizons malfunction procedures. And there's a picture of that in the book, too. You know, it, was lear- it was fun learning about some of the rituals and, and talking about them because there's some superstitions, too, that, that, that people follow. And you think, well, these guys are engineers and scientists. Yeah. They know that they don't need superstition. We're, we're logical. And yet there's something comf- comforting. I think it's like in sports to having these rituals just because you know there's things that are out of your control. Exactly. And so Alan had things like, you know, his special pen that he writes in and his, his little, what, you had a little Pluto uh, doll. You called your plutometer. Plutometer. (laughs) 
Uh, you as know. long as you didn't have like a shirt that you would never wash, it's good. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but but it's fun because you just see how uh, you know people kind of. We're all human, and even though, yeah, we're logical and we've got procedures, it's still comforting to have these little superstitious rituals that kind of, uh, you know, you draw upon in times of anxiety. Um, You know what? We've got a a few more minutes left in this segment. Why don't we take a couple cosmic queries? People have been uh, sending in their their questions for for Alan and and for Chuck and I. Let's uh, let's see what what you've got there, Chuck. Well, thank you for including me in that uh, uh, very esteemed uh, company, but... uh, Yes, Dr. Nice. No one is asking. No one's asking me anything. But we always start off with a Patreon patron. And so uh, Renee Douglas wants to know this. Is there new data brought about by the New Horizons mission that blew your mind? What did you find that you were not expecting? Renee oh, Douglas man. from Pittsburgh, PA. Wow, Where do that's we a start? Great question. Do we How many hours do we have? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, well, that's the question. The, the, the question the... was, is there? So the answer is yes. <laughs> that's true. Uh, we could elaborate. <laughs> well, or we could go biggest, to the next question. What was the biggest next thing? question? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Alan, Alan, tell thing? us one mind blowing thing that you learned from New Horizons. I know it's hard to narrow it down, but just what comes to mind? Oh, I think the the scale of the geological activity taking place on Pluto. That's cool. Yeah. Not not just the variety of geologies, but the the fact that, for example, the the western half of the heart of Pluto, which is this glacier the size of Texas and Oklahoma combined, we, we named Sputnik, um, that glacier is roiling. It's got a heat source below it. It's got avalanches that are feeding it so that it's recharging. It's got uh, places where it's subducting under the mountain ranges. It is completely alive, and no one expected that a planet Pluto's size could still be so active after four and a half billion years. But like I said last night, apparently Pluto can't read textbooks because <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's just we, doing its thing. I used to teach intro, intro astronomy year after year at, at University of Colorado, and, and one of the things I taught my students was that small planets are not as active as big planets. And I told, told them why, according to the laws of physics. You know, it has to do with surface-to-volume ratio and all that. You know about that, Chuck. But, uh, but then, um, you know, of course, when we explore... Uh, the universe never conforms to our models and our expectations. And we get there, and it's not just there's some activity. It's like one of the most active places. There's this huge area of, of the heart, you know, which is fresh ice. That's why it's bright and white. And and it's roiling um, nitrogen ice, which is churning and convecting a big, giant nitrogen glacier with no impact craters, which means it's forming now still. It's not ancient. Nobody expected that. Um, and, you know, it's just one of the wonderful things about planetary exploration. Every time you get to a new kind of planet, we seem to have to throw out our textbooks. It's we, great for textbook makers, by the way. But so Pl- let, me, let me follow up that question, though. So, so that's, a, that's a, just a tremendous discovery, you know. Mm-hmm. Is there any discovery along those lines or otherwise mm-hmm. that would help us understand our planet better? Well, in a general sense, for sure, because, uh, you know, the we see on Pluto a lot of the same processes that we see on Earth, just made out of different materials. So it really forces us to step back and say, well, what do we know about glaciers, really? Do we know everything we thought? We knew Alan had to hire some glaciologists to, to uh, help us figure out what's going on 
on Pluto. These are Earth glaciologists. So, of course, they're looking at another planet. That, that enlarges their perspective. And, of course, when they go back and look at Earth, they're going to have some, some new knowledge. So, so, in a broad sense, whenever we encounter a new planet with new processes, it goes into that huge pot of information we have of how planets work. There are also a couple of, pl- a couple of ways that Pluto is specifically like the Earth in ways that um, almost no other planet is. One is it's a double planet formed through a giant impact that formed uh, the satellite system the same way that the Earth-Moon system was Uh formed through a giant impact. And no other planet we have been to is like that. So Pluto's the only extent example of a giant impact formation that we can study in analogy to the Earth to understand the formation of our own moon. I'll give you one more. You know, the Earth's polar obliquity, the tilt of the Earth's axis is 23 degrees, and it shifts back and forth, makes climate cycles, natural climate cycles. And a guy back in the 1920s named Milankovitch figured this out. And we have also found Milankovitch cycles. The Earth's axis goes back and forth two degrees, and it makes ice ages, just shifting back and forth two degrees. turns out Pluto has Milankovitch cycles, except there, Pluto's obliquity goes back and forth 20-something degrees, 10 times as much, much more extreme, which allows us to, you know, by seeing a more extreme case, to really test the models for, for climate change on the Earth. So Pluto's basically got ice ages, but, but on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to uh, take, take another short break here, but we'll be back with more of your cosmic queries and more discussion with, with Alan Stern in just a minute. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm David Grinspoon, your All Star host of the evening. Joining me as co host, I've got Chuck Nice here. That's right. And we've been talking about the epic first mission to Pluto and beyond, the New Horizons mission, with Alan Stern, the principal investigator of New Horizons. And by the way, did I mention that Alan and I have a new book out called Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto? It's on sale now wherever fine books are sold. And uh, I'm buying one. Chuck's, uh, we've already sold one. Chuck's going to get one, and Alan's mom's getting one, so we're, we're on our way. I think but she got two. She got two. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, but uh, you know, it, it does contain kind of the inside story, how a spaceflight really happens, and some of the crazy drama that, that this team went through on the on the trail from from just a dream to an actual successful mission. Um, before we, we're going to do some more cosmic queries, but I want to just ask Alan to talk about one more moment. We talked about the launch. Let's talk about the flyby itself. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to say, but, you know, the human experience of that, the emotions of the team, um, how did that compare to sort of the moment of the launch as far as before and after and during? I mean, it, it sounds to me like it was all kind of surreal, what, do you, what, do you, what is your memory of the flyby like now, a few years later? I remember being very tired. Um, <laughs> our team was working round the clock for many weeks on approach. And, and, it, and the book actually tells the story, you know, at some point when I was typically getting four hours of sleep a night. And, uh, you know, I kept wishing it would get better and get better. And then I just realized this is all it's going to be for the next month or six weeks. So I decided I would try and feed on the energy of being tired and like, you know, do a judo move on that. And all of us, I know at the flyby, were super pumped up on emotional energy, but we were we were really, really tired. That's what I remember. John Spencer, who's one of the uh, characters in the book, he's a, a good friend of, of both of ours and a, a planetary geologist uh, who um, has a lot of very important roles in the New Horizons mission. He described this feeling 
of, you know, during the, the flyby, during the encounter, it's, it's a very short time out of this ve- long, many, multi-year, multi-decade quest. He described this feeling of sort of wanting time to slow down, of realizing that this was going to be a peak moment, maybe the peak moment of the rest of his life, but also wanting to take it all in because he couldn't possibly process it in real time and sort of realizing he just wanted to record it and then he'd be playing back that movie for the rest of his life in his mind. I think a lot of us felt that way. And some people, in, beginning in the spring of 2015, um, some of the engineering and flight control team had come to me and said, you know, this has been in my future so long. I've so looked forward. We've worked on this. I've always had, I can't remember not having the exploration of Pluto in my future. And now it's happening. And I just want to hit the brakes. I don't know what it'll be like when I don't have that to look forward to, you know, this big career accomplishment. It's like an NFL player retiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know what happened is, is that the, the data that replaced it, what, you know, actually seeing Pluto and its system of satellites and hundreds of different data sets from seven scientific instruments filled up that, that hole of having it in the rearview mirror. And, uh, you know, some people thought some of us might have uh, some emotional problems afterwards with a sense of loss but all that sense of loss was filled with um uh all those data sets and all the memories of the flyby it's it's a little bit like i remember and i've never put this together so i'm saying this for the first time i um my wife and i were married six years before we had our first kid and i remember right when it came time uh, to do the delivery thinking our life is ending as a couple you know we're now going to share this with another human being Mm -hmm. Um, and it's going to be 30 years or let's say 18 years until it's back to the two of us. At least we might have more kids. And I felt a sense of loss of, a, of that two person relationship because a third person was coming in. Mm-hmm. But then when you have your child, you know, that completely changes the game. And, and you're really not missing the time before at all because you're so excited about that person and what they bring to the table. I think those data sets were very similar and I've never thought well, about it helped that. It's It's funny because, see, you said our life is ending as a couple. When I had my first child, it was just like, our life is ending. (laughs) Full stop. There you go. (laughs) But but it helps that this baby, Pluto, turned out to be such a beautiful, I mean, it's like Pluto, you know, if it hadn't been as interesting as it is, maybe there would have, that hole would have been harder to fill. But now we've got literally this whole new, wonderful, complex, hard-to-understand world that's going to take years to work out, and you guys are just beginning that process of figuring out what you've learned. We barely scratch the surface. We think of ourselves, you know, with when you have hundreds of data sets and a science team that's only a couple dozen people, um, we think of ourselves as like ER doctors that are triaging the patients, the patients being different data sets. Open the data set, quickly do a, a first-order reduction, see what the, the easy discoveries are, and move on, because you don't know how many more big discoveries are coming. But the real hard work is actually the, the careful reanalysis and the integration of how data sets compare and building computer models that explain the atmospheric change or you know what those ice volcanoes are all about and how they could form or how Sputnik can be so alive. And that takes, as you said, David, it takes decades to, to really pull all that out. But I so think in that sense, the New Horizons uh, mission is uh, far, far from uh, even the Pluto encounter in that sense is far from being over because uh, that, that that's part of it is figuring out what it all means. One of the biggest surprises to me, we thought uh, that w- the advances we would make would be uh, 
kind of an end all. They would they would put a bow around Pluto for us, but they open so many questions that now people are talking about going back. Let's have an orbiter mission. It's a lot like Mars. You know, the early flybys revolutionized our knowledge, but they just created a need for more. Created a Mars program, and now. We're going to need a Pluto program. <laughs> hey, Chuck, um, let's, let's go back to some cosmic queries. I know you've got some questions there that people have been sending in. Let's, let's, uh, let's do that. Yeah, let's go to Cindy Williams on Instagram, who says this. Uh, With the new information sent back from New Horizons about Pluto, isn't there a strong evidence and therefore argument to reclassify it as a planet again? Well... I'm glad you asked that, Cindy. Um, actually, I don't know if I am. In a, in a certain sense, uh, we don't want to even dwell on this question because it's not the most interesting question about Pluto. We, we were, we were going to have a whole chapter in the book about classification of planets, and then we, we reduced it to a few pages. But, you know, briefly, uh, Alan and I and a lot of planetary scientists, and we differentiate between planetary scientists and astronomers, we refer to Pluto as a planet just because... You know, in our game, we're interested in in these bodies, these round, complex bodies, and looking at the geography and the processes on them, their atmospheres, their moons, and we just consider them planets. Uh, a big r- object like Pluto that's uh, round by self-gravity, that's orbiting the sun, uh, you know, that's, to us, it's... You know, we never stopped calling it a planet, really. And that's not true about every planetary scientist. But you go to our meetings and you go to a session about Pluto, and that's just everybody calls it a planet. So um, we were not really thrilled with the uh, IAU attempt to redefine Pluto. I mean, to redefine planet. It made sense to reconsider. You know, there were all these discover discoveries of planets out in the Kuiper Belt and planets around other stars. It made sense to reclassify things and look at, yeah, I mean, these are dwarf planets. It's a different kind of planet than uh, j- gas giants like Jupiter or terrestrial planets like the Earth. But then to go and add that a dwarf planet is not a planet, that part gets really kind of silly. And by the way, even Neil Tyson has come around and uh, agrees with us that, that now dw- that dwarf planets are a kind of planet. Really? Yeah. Oh. yeah. He's evolved. Yeah. I have proof of that if you need it. I would like to hear that. All right. Well, just happened to have um, a tape from a conversation that, that Alan and Neil had uh, not, not too long ago. Whoops, I almost hit the Janelle Monet. Here we go. Category of planet. Well, I have no problem with that. Play that again. Dwarf planet is a category of planet. I have no problem with that. What was that, Neil? If dwarf planet is a category of planet, I have no problem with that. Wait, just to be clear, do you have a problem, Neil? If dwarf planet is a category of planet, I have no problem okay, with that. Okay, thanks, Neil. <laughs> so you see, thinking is evolving. There you go. Oh, man. That is great. Hey, well, Cindy, there you have it. There's your answer. Uh, even from Neil. <laughs> okay, let's go to uh, Kyle Ryan Toth. Uh, Kyle is also a Patreon patron. He says, can you please set the record straight and demystify the legendary planet that lurks beyond the orbit of Pluto? Is there evidence that such a planet exists? Alan? Well, I've actually worked on this a lot, um, beginning in the early 1990s. And there's strong evidence, various threads of evidence, kind of forensic evidence, that there are lots more planets in our solar system much further out. They're very hard to detect because, you know, the sunlight gets weaker like the distance squared going out. And then as it reflects back, it gets weaker by the distance squared. So you get an 
distance to the fourth power effect. Mm. Um, so it's very hard to see a lot further out than the Kuiper belt. But I predict uh, that when the 21st century is done, that we will have found several largish planets, let's say Mars-sized, Earth-sized, maybe even bigger, and very large numbers of small planets. Now, whether the particular one that's being searched for right now, whether there's some orbital data that's a little bit controversial, the Brown and Batigan hypothesis is there or not, we'll see. But I think we're going to find that as the decades of the 21st century go on and our capabilities get better and better, that we will find ultimately that the sun made lots of planets and most of them are far beyond Neptune. And I can't wait. I mean, I hope these guys are right, and there are you know, they, they, this planet does exist. As Alan said, the data, you know, we'll see if the, if they're right. But if they're not, there there will be some out there. But I can't wait. It's just going to be so cool to find out that there are more big planets out there. Absolutely! Wow, super cool. So there you have it. Uh, the answer, uh, Kyle, is yes. Um, so let's go to. Um Oh, okay. This is kind of cool. Let's go to Tinderbox, who says, if you could put one modern instrument on New Horizons right now, uh, now that it has arrived, what would you pick? What technology uh, that New Horizons is using has changed in the last? Well, of course, years. New Horizons is not at Pluto anymore. Right, it's, so it hasn't it's gone. And so it the question, the question's about I, if I we could do a hypothetical saying, redo. Right. Yeah. So what is the one thing? What would you put on New Horizons if you were still on our way to Pluto that that you could that you didn't if right. you could? Right. But I want to also answer. I want to respect the question about new technology. Yeah. Okay. And and uh, I have a very specific idea. You know, as we were approaching Pluto, it turns very slowly on its axis. It takes 6.4 days. So we flew past one side of Pluto and saw it in great detail. But the other side, we could only see from three days, which is about 3 million miles out. Wow. Right? So our pictures of the far side of Pluto are not nearly as, as good. And we don't understand that far side today. It, much better than we could do from the Hubble or from Earth but they're about like looking at the moon with a, 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 a dime store a pair of binoculars. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have pictures on the near side that are, you know, if you were flying over New York City and had pictures of New York City at the same resolution, you'd be counting the ponds in Central Park. Sweet. So one new technology has developed that would have been really cool to carry are called CubeSats. Mm. You know, these little miniature satellites. We could have deployed one and fired the engine so it showed up three days before or after and made close-ups of the far side and transmitted them back to the mothership. So if I could do one redo experiment, I would have added a CubeSat with a camera oh, man. to get the far side. That's really cool because, yeah, the, the problem with a flyby as your only mission somewhere is that you, know, you don't get to see the whole surface in detail. So I, lo- I love that idea. Next time we go to a new planet <laughs> for the first time, we'll bring a little probe and send it around the other side at the same time. That's really cool. We probably have time for, for one more cosmic query, Chuck. So um, pick an awesome one, would okay, you? Okay, let's see. Let's see here. Um, hey, how about this one? This is kind of cool. Uh, this is John Tweak from Instagram, who says, if you could play any sport on Pluto, what would it be and why? Consider gravity, atmosphere, landscape, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. That's, a, that's an interesting one. I probably wouldn't play basketball because I don't think of that gravity it would be. But, but I don't know. It's probably some winter sport, right? It would, be, it would be super boring to play basketball because every jump would last right. an hour and a half. Right. Nobody would watch. Yeah. But I think skiing would be spectacular. You know, Pluto's got these, you know, 
mountains the size of the Rockies, even taller than the Rockies. They're snow-capped, but with this exotic stuff, the frozen methane, and skiing down them in low gravity, uh, making big jumps, you know, the jumps you could never make on the Earth without uh, committing suicide (laughs) would just be spectacular. And because Pluto's a smaller world, just like the astronauts who walked on the moon and could see the curvature when they were up on hilltops or, you know, uh, crater cones and things like that. If you're up on big, tall mountains on Pluto, you'd see that horizon. It would look like you're on a globe. Yeah, man, I wonder, what, down, I wonder what skiing and methane snow would be like. You know, maybe the 20, 22nd century Olympics, uh, they'll have that sport. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up. We could talk with Alan all day. You've been listening to Star Talk All-Stars. Uh, I want to give a uh, big thanks to my, co- my co-host, Chuck Nice, for being with us today. Thanks, Chuck. I, I, are you kidding me? It was my pleasure. And uh, I just want to say, uh, please go out and get Chasing New Horizons inside the epic first mission to Pluto. Thanks, Chuck. And, and thanks to my friend and colleague, Alan Stern, the PI, Principal Investigator of the New Horizons mission. Uh, thanks for joining us, Alan. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been your host, David Grinspoon, a.k.a. Dr. Funky Spoon. Until next time, remember to keep it funky. (laughs) 